I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Carol Meredith of Lajure Meredith on the show. Great to have you here. Thank you. So you were born in Wales. I was. I was born in Wales, yeah, at an early age, as they say. And then you moved to the States. Yeah, I I was born in Wales and then um, moved uh, to the suburbs of London with my folks, obviously, and then to Canada for a while and then to California. My dad was with an international company, kept accepting transfers because there was a promise of a better life. My mother... Uh, didn't like Ontario, Canada, because it was too cold. Didn't like Vancouver, Canada, because it was too wet. Got to California. She loved it. She said, I'm not moving. So my dad left the company and started his own business. And that's where we stayed, in the Bay Area, in the suburbs of San Francisco. Where did you go to school? I went to high school in Orinda, California. And then uh, went to college at UC Davis, which is also where I ended up working. Oh, okay. And how did that progression happen along? Well, I, I went to UC Davis for my undergraduate because my folks didn't have a lot of money, and I wanted to go to a good university, as, and they wanted me to. Uh, university of California is a public university, which uh, at that time was very inexpensive. I wanted to go to Berkeley, but my dad wouldn't let me because it was the 60s, and Berkeley was a, a wild place. and A hot spot, as No man would want his innocent daughter to go to Berkeley. So I went to Davis instead, and Davis was actually very similar to Berkeley with uh, the hippies and the free speech and the drugs and the, and the sex and the rock and roll, except that the press didn't cover Davis, and so my daddy didn't know and nobody else did either. So, so you I got the best to, of both worlds. I got the best of both worlds, yeah. So I went to Davis as an undergrad, uh, graduated not knowing what I wanted to do, um, worked office jobs, just, you know, just crap jobs. For several years, and then kind of rediscovered science through gardening. Oh, yeah? How'd that happen? Yeah, well, it happened because I, I was with my first husband, Dennis, and he was interested in gardening. And so that kind of rekindled my interest in plants, which I had had briefly in high school. And then I decided to get a job at a retail nursery because I was fascinated by the diversity of cultivated plants. What kind of plants are we talking about? Is this grapevines? Marigolds. 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 So nothing to do with vines. Nothing. Oh, nothing. No, vines didn't come along for many, many years. And, and that was just kind of by accident. 
So yeah, I got interested in in flowers. I got interested in all the petunias and marigolds uh, that were for sale at the retail nursery. And and then I began to think that people had created those, and that would really be a fascinating thing to do, would be to actually create a marigold that was darker or lighter or bigger or a or a petunia that was, you know, brighter pink and through genetic selection and crossing. Yeah, yeah. So plant plant breeding and so I thought, well, maybe I should go back to school and learn how to do that because I'd love to be a flower breeder. So I decided to go back to school. And where uh, is one of the best places in the country to study plant breeding, plant genetics, but UC Davis. So I went back there thinking I was just going to do a master's and become a flower breeder. But in the course of taking, and I, I was lucky to even get in because I hadn't been a, a highly motivated undergraduate because of, of the It was times, the 60s, the times, yeah. <laughs> as you explained, yeah. I, yeah. But uh, I managed to convince the interviewer that despite my not really stellar grades, that I really was highly motivated, and they had seen some aptitude tests, and they knew that, that I, I was capable. So I got into this master's program, and then in the course of taking the first couple of required classes I needed to take, I just got switched on. It just something happened, and everything in my brain that I'd ever known about science and forgotten all came back, and it, it was really a kind of a remarkable experience to go through. So all of a sudden, had my brain just fully functional, and I just was I excelled in my courses, and I, wow, this was just great. And I made friends with a, a guy in one of my classes named John Phobes, who's still my friend all these years later. And he had been groomed for grad school from an early age. He'd been a really, really strong undergraduate at Penn State University. And he was in a PhD program, and he was working with a really famous plant geneticist named Charlie Rick. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, well, maybe I should get a PhD. Maybe I should work with Charlie Rick. And so I went and and Charlie Rick was teaching one of these classes that I was taking that where I was sitting next to John. And so I went to talk to Charlie Rick and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to get in a PhD program and I'd like to work with you. And he kind of laughed at me because he'd never heard of me. And he only took students who had been kind of shown, had been directed to them by their mentors at other universities. Did you take that as kind of throwing down the gauntlet? Like did that double you down yeah, to get in? Yeah, but but he also said, you know, I don't have any money to, to fund you. And I didn't even realize then that, you know, if you're in a PhD program in science, you're usually funded by your major professor because you contribute to the research program. So he said, and, and his kind of excuse for not taking me was, was well, I can't fund you. I don't have the grant money. I don't have, and I said that's okay. I'll you know I'll support myself. I went and talked to the the student employment office and and got some loans or grants or something. I went back to him and said I can support myself. And he said, oh, well, okay, I can fund you. So I, I guess, and I was doing really really well in his class. I was writing. I wrote a paper. I was still interested in flowers. I wrote a paper about breeding begonias. And it turned out that he liked begonias. Even though he was a tomato guy, he liked begonias, and he really liked my paper. And so uh, I switched into a PhD program working with him. And so my friend John Phobes, who I had met in this class, who's still my friend, uh, he and I just became the, uh, the dynamic duo. We ended up sharing an office together. We just became the best buds. We pretty much ran the department. We were the only graduate students who had a private office. It was just just he and I in, in this office, and we had a really good time in, in grad school. I love and, that there was tomato guys. Like yeah. in the wine world, there'd be Cabernet guys, right? Yes. Well, you know, but this, so 
the University of California at Davis is an agricultural university, like Texas A&M, like Iowa State, like University of Wisconsin. These are land-grant universities. And so they have departments that are devoted to the major agricultural commodities in their state. So at UC Davis, in addition to a viticulture and enology department, which is where I eventually ended up, I was in the vegetable crops department as a graduate student. You're like, get asparagus on the phone. We got some questions. Pretty much, pretty much. And so Charlie Rick, my major professor, uh, he was a preeminent plant geneticist, but he was also a tomato guy. That was the system that he worked in was tomatoes. And so that's what I worked on. If you were working with him, you worked on tomatoes. So, yeah, so I, I got through grad school working with him. And I'm so glad that, that John Phobes was my pal because he knew how all this worked because he'd been such a promising undergrad and had been groomed for this. He knew how it worked and I didn't. But he showed me the way, and I quickly caught on, and then I thought I learned how it worked. So I finished grad school with Charlie Rick. This was the dawn of plant biotech. What do you mean by that? I mean that the technologies that eventually enabled people to do genetic engineering, GMOs, genetic mapping, genome studies, all the very powerful stuff that's going on now, some of it scary, some of it not so, that was just just emerging. It had already begun to emerge with humans and some of the mammalian model systems like rats and mice. But with plants, uh, plants were a few years behind, but it turned out that all the, the principles and the tools were the same. They just had to be adapted and, and in sometimes created for plants, but that was happening. And so I was kind of in on the ground floor of that. And after I finished grad school, it was customary to do some postdoctoral research somewhere. It's kind of part of the, it's just like doctors do internships. It was kind of like that. And there was a young guy at Michigan State University who was a rising star named Peter Carlson. And I decided it would be good to work with him. And so I applied for a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellowship to get the funding to go work with him. But a, a requirement for that National Science Foundation, you had to be a U.S. citizen, which I wasn't at the time, having come from the U.K. to Canada, California. I'd somehow forgotten to uh, become a U.S. citizen. What had happened was that um, you have to live here for a number of years. I, I came to the U.S. at the age of 11, so I wasn't even eligible until I was about 16. And at that age, I could have become a citizen with my parents. But my parents didn't quite get around to it for a couple more years. By the time they did it, I was already 18, which meant I had to do it on my own. I actually thought about doing it once I got to uh, college, looked at the application, and I found that it just required one to be a hypocrite to apply. It, like one of the first questions was, have you ever committed a crime for which you were not arrested? Well, by that time, I'd done any number of illegal drugs. And so, yeah, but so basically you want me to lie to become a citizen of this fine country. And I said, I, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, not going to play that game. I'm not, not going to become a citizen. You were a conscientious objector to I citizenship. I was, yeah, until it came time to... Get uh, the grant money. To, to get, yeah, to get a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellowship. So I immediately applied again, answered all the damn questions the way they needed to be answered. Means uh, to the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it served my needs. And uh, 
got sworn in on the day of the postmark deadline for applying for this fellowship, um, got sworn in, immediately went to a notary, got some statement of citizenship notarized, went to the post office, mailed the thing off, got the, got the fellowship, went to Michigan State for a year. And then living in Michigan, uh, I had never lived outside of California uh, as, as an adult and experienced winter, uh, experienced ragweed, experienced humidity. I was there for 12 months, and every one of them was memorable. And I uh, thought that here I was, you know, it was the dawn of plant biotechnology, and I, w- I was getting offered jobs at, in different parts of the country because I was sort of in the vanguard. Probably for big money. Uh, not really, but, you know, still interesting, interesting jobs, but none of them were in California. And I had realized by now that I really wanted to go back to California because I didn't like winter. I didn't like ragweed or humidity. And so I started looking at jobs back in California, got a job uh, with a biotech company in California, and moved back to California. I worked for that company for a short while. I, I was one of the first two hires to start their plant biotech program. Decided I didn't like working for them because I had a boss. And I'd never really had a boss before. In grad school, you don't really have a boss. It's more, it's a mentor, a colleague. And so I didn't like having a boss. I also didn't like the fact that my productivity at this company was going to be measured by my contribution to their bottom line. Oh, okay. And I was still kind of idealistic at the time, thought that uh, thought that maybe I was going to make a contribution to world food supply yeah, or like maybe something. You know. People in India would be able to eat. Yeah. Ethiopia, like famine. That, thanks to me. You that know. kind of thing. Because there was that wheat, right? The dwarf oh, absolutely. wheat. Absolutely. And it was the Green Revolution. Yeah. That, and, and the dwarf wheat and dwarf rice, that, those were really big, big uh That was a big points. deal. It was a very, very big deal. And I thought I, I might make a contribution along those lines, but here working for a private company, that, that wasn't going to do it for me. And I really hated having a boss. I'd have to walk by his office on my way in in the morning, and I'd catch him glancing at his watch when I walked in, and I was kind of like, screw you. Yeah, that's not the reason I became a citizen, uh, you know, buddy. I'll, I'll get to work when I want. I, I, I just It just pissed me off, no end. So I started thinking I wanted to get back to a university environment. I liked the uh, university environment. It's a great work environment. But I didn't want to leave Northern California. Now that I'd made it back there, I was going to stay there. So that meant UC Davis again. So I'd been there as an undergrad, come back for grad school, and here I was looking at maybe going back again for a permanent job. So I talked to people I knew there about positions that might come open in the near future. And there were two or three, um, and and of course they were defined by the plant, the crop. There was a bean job, there was a lettuce job, and there was a grape job. And I applied for the lettuce job and the grape job because of the timing. The lettuce job, it came down to me and a guy from England named Richard Mitchell Moore. And that uh, was in the vegetable crops department. And I think uh, the people in vegetable crops department, they knew me because I'd been to grad school in that department. But they really liked this Richard Mitchell Moore guy. And so they talked to the grape department. They said, listen, are you going to hire Carol? Because we really would like her, but we also like this Mitchellmore guy. And if you would hire Carol, well, then we get both. The campus gets both. So the viticulture and enology department offered me the grape job. 
Richard Mitchellmore got the lettuce job, which he still has. This is back in 1980, so he still has that job, and he is just he's, he's an incredible scientist. I mean, that's the way, though, right? People get tenure and they stick around? Yes, they they stick around. If they like it, if they're really, really good, then they have choices and they they may or may not move on. It, and, and I'm sure Richard has had choices, but he's chosen to stay. So I joined the Department of Viticulture and Enology in 1980. Who had been like in that seat before you? The seat before me was occupied by Harold Olmo, who had been there since the 30s. Wow. Yeah, he's and, a famous name. Oh, a very famous guy. Yeah, Harold P. Olmo. And he had retired. And those were big shoes to fill, but the department was really hoping to get somebody who would bring the new technology to the job. They saw you as the young gun. They also saw me as a way to save some money because Olmo doing traditional grape breeding, traditional grape breeding takes a lot of land and a lot of years. It's a big perennial crop. One generation is multiple years. They thought, wow, this biotechnology stuff, this can really speed it up. You know, this Carol will be able to make new grapes in, in no time at all. And so that was the uh, that was the expectation for me. And I I was fortunate enough to hear in later years after I joined the department, a couple of people who'd been there a couple of years longer than me told me about some of the discussions when they had been considering hiring me. And it was me. And another guy that it was down to me and this other guy who had actually done his graduate work in that department with Olmo. And there was grave concern that if they were to hire me, I would be faced with this very serious issue of how to pee out in the vineyard. And this was a big, big problem that these guys just didn't see how. How was I going to be able to conduct my professional life where I was going to have to be out in the vineyard and I was going to need to pee? How was I going to do it? Because I was female, and apparently they must have they must have worked through this issue because they did offer me the job, and I did learn how to pee in the vineyard. So you know, it, it turned out to be a non-issue, but it was hilarious to me that they actually. Does that mean there wasn't a lot of women in the department at the time? There, there was one woman who preceded, who was there already, Ann Noble, the woman who did the uh, aroma wheel. Yeah, and she had been there for a few years ahead of me. In fact, six years, I think. But she didn't have to go out in the vineyard because she... I wondered why Cat P was on that aroma wheel multiple yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she is a uh, sensory scientist and, uh, and a flavor chemist. And so none of her work really required that she spend time in the vineyard. And so she didn't have to face the challenge that, that I did. Anyway, so when I first started in the Department of Viticulture and Enology, I don't know that I'd ever seen a grapevine. Is that true? Yeah. Did you I, leave that off the application? It wasn't. It wasn't part of the. It wasn't a requirement. Because plants are plants. Plants are plants. The requirement was that I be a good plant geneticist, and uh, and I was, because you can take all the principles are the same. I had worked at that point. I had worked with tomatoes, and corn. When I worked for the private company for a couple of years, I added in corn, soybean, cotton little bit of tobacco. Cash crops. Well, they're commodity crops. You know, they're big, they're Midwestern, big commodity crops. The, the cotton's not Midwestern, but the corn and the soybeans certainly are. Like if you can make a small adjustment in quantity in that, that oh, ends up having where, a big it, deal. Yes. It's where yield really matters. Quality is really incidental or it's, it's trivial. Whereas grape is, is what, what's called a horticultural crop like apples and strawberry 
where quality is what really, really matters. The flavor, the appearance, that you know, the aroma, that all really matters. Was that a known thing back then? Because I feel like I've had a lot of watery strawberries on my day. That wasn't a known thing. The problem with what you've had in your day is that you probably have had stuff that has been designed to ship. And that's always a, a sacrifice, whether it's table grapes, um, apples, strawberries. If it's going to have to be transported long distance, then sometimes it's picked before it's ripe. It then is ripened under a controlled atmosphere it's not the same. It's just not the same as, as ripening on the plant, you know. So that's why homegrown strawberries and homegrown apples are always so much better. And homegrown tomatoes are so much better than what you buy in the store. So I, I had to learn grape because that's what I was expected to work on. And my first couple of years, I continued to work with tobacco, not, not the kind of tobacco that you smoke, but a, a tobacco species that was kind of like a white mouse for plants, a, a model a model system kind of tobacco. Oh, that shared a lot of the, the yeah that, RNA uh, with other plants. Basic, basic plant genetics model, just like just like white rats are a model for humans and other mammals. That that's what what uh, that tobacco species was. So I just kind of eased into grape because grape having a long generation time, and it wasn't a system that was yet amenable to biotechnology. That was going to kind of be my job is to try to make it work. But yet I was expected to publish, you know, University of California, major research university, you sure better be writing papers right out of the gate. Because if you don't, you're not going to survive, you're not going to get tenure. So that meant I had to, I had to do things where I could get publishable results, which meant working with a system that was more tractable than grape. You didn't want to wait five years to get the first paper out. I couldn't, no, because they were going to evaluate me in two years. So, you know, I, I had to I had to do stuff. And so I eventually, though, did get things working with Grape, uh, started publishing stuff on Grape, and, you know, and, and eventually got things going. But it, it wasn't until I had been there for over 10 years that it really started to get interesting for me. I was working on trying to get grape cells to grow in culture so that they could be genetically engineered, you know, and because that that was sort of my target. And I did work towards that, and I was making progress. But it wasn't until the early 90s when some DNA markers started to become really powerful for human genetics. And there was a time, there was a guy in England named Alec Jeffries and he started using DNA markers for human genetics to like use them in forensics to solve a murder case, to solve a rape case, to do paternity analysis, to figure out who's related to who. And I had a, a graduate student at the time, a PhD student named John Bowers, and very, very bright guy, just a you know, really brilliant student. And he and I went to a seminar over at the medical school. UC Davis has a medical school and a law school and, you know, a bunch of other schools. We went to a seminar in the medical school given by a guy named Eric Lander, who is one of the pioneers in genomics and DNA markers and using them for mapping and all the powerful things that they can be used for. And he gave a seminar about how these DNA markers had been used in rats 
to study hypertension, high blood pressure in rats, and how using these markers, they'd been able to to localize some genes that were really, really important in hypertension. And these markers were kind of a new kind of marker, and part of his seminar was to explain the power and the beauty of this kind of marker. It was called a microsatellite marker. And John and I both realized as we were watching this seminar, we both realized we could do that in grape. And here he was talking about how these markers could be used to study inheritance and parentage and who's related to who. And John and I both looked at each other and said, wouldn't it be great to do that in grape? But we didn't have any of those those kinds of markers. You, you can't just buy them. They have to be be developed specifically for every system that you're working with. So for grape, nothing. They didn't even exist for any plants at all. But other people working in other plants were beginning to realize, hey, this would be useful in tomatoes, this would be useful in corn. But any of those markers that got developed for tomatoes wouldn't work for me in grape because they're not species-specific, but they're system-specific. So maybe a a marker that was developed for conquered grapes might work in wine grapes, but it has to be a grape, some kind of grape. So John and I started thinking that maybe we should try to develop these kinds of markers, but you need a lot of them. To do this kind of work, you need a lot of them. And if we were lucky, we could develop five or six, you know, and that would take a lot of work. Where are we going to get the money? Who's going to give us money to develop this esoteric, these kind of markers to do weird work that really isn't going to serve the needs of the grape growers and the winemakers. And that was kind of being at a land-grant university that part of my job was to do stuff that would meet the needs of the industry, which means grape growers and winemakers in California. So it has to address a need. And that often means either making their production more efficient, reducing their costs, solving a problem in the winery, solving a disease or a pest problem in the, the vineyard. Now that things are more advanced, now it, it is down to how can you make th- these grapes taste better? How can you make this wonderful flavor that we can only get on the far Sonoma coast, make it happen in Fresno where it's hot? You know, But those sorts of questions didn't, didn't even exist back then. So John Bowers and I, my student, realized that we needed some of these markers. And so I started talking to people working in my field at other in other countries for the most part. There were a couple of other people in the United States, mostly, actually, just maybe one or two others at Cornell, and that's pretty much it. But I started talking to people I knew in France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Chile, Australia, and so on, thinking if we got together and worked together to share the load of developing these markers... We could get a lot of them, and we could get a lot of work done if we worked together, but it it can only happen if we work together. And that's what happened with DNA, right? Because multiple labs worked on the human DNA. Exactly. Yeah, you have to. And so we formed what we called the VITUS Microsatellite Consortium. So microsatellite was the kind of marker. VITUS is grape consortium. And so there was going to be a conference in San Diego that most of us were going to, so we organized a little side meeting to discuss this. And, and, and I spearheaded this. And I have to look back and think, you know, I, I did that. And I, I'm kind of proud that, 
that I did that because it really took off. We ended up developing well over 300 of these markers, which enabled us to have a genome map in grape. It enabled us to do a lot of stuff. So then getting back to then my own research program, that's what enabled us to do all the work for which I'm mostly known now, which is discovering the parents of, of wine grapes and where they came from and how they're related to each other. And it's all because we had these, these markers. So it's amazing how, how one's path, I'm sure you can look back at your own path. I've never plotted a course. And when I look back, it all seems so logical, but you know, it was, it was never by design. It just kind of happened. And so Kind of like some of these grape crossings that you found. Oh, wait, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, although those, some of those are really random. I wasn't quite that random, but some of those things were really random. So anyway, so, so our very first discovery, and this is with John Bowers, and this is John's discovery, and I want to make sure that he gets credit for this. At the time, we had been using these DNA markers that we were developing. We were using them in a very uh, useful but not too exciting way, and that was to confirm the identity of some grapes in California that might have been misnamed. Well, there was a lot of those, right? Lots of them, and that's the same in every New World country. Every New World country gets its grapes from Europe, and the names get mixed up. It happens everywhere. Like Chile, with what they thought was Merlot, turned out to be Carmenere, and, and so on. And for us in California, I mean, there were many examples that there was like what we thought was Pinot Blanc turned out to be uh, Malone. So we were trying to straighten some of these things out by getting authentic samples, mostly from France, from the French collection in uh, near Montpellier, having an authentic DNA sample from there, and then comparing the DNA profile with what we had, both at the university and out in the vineyards, and trying to solve those problems. And in the course of doing so, we were building up a small database of our major varieties in California. We got up to 25 varieties in California, which that was really pretty much it. And John, being a, a really bright scientist, he'd go home and just kind of chew on this stuff, you know. And one Sunday, he called me at home. He says, Carol, 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 I think I found the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon. So he'd been looking at these DNA profiles and taking into account what we had learned from Eric Lander's seminar about how these markers, they're not just identity markers. They're markers that show inheritance. So they will show you if something is the father or mother of something else because they will share certain DNA markers. So he says, I think I've found the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon. They're Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. Now, the only reason that he was able to see that is because both of those varieties were in the 25 that are commonly grown in California. They were in that set. They were in that set. It was, it was all we had, pretty much, of the 20. That's, that's all we had DNA profiles for was those 25. So that was really pure serendipity. If Cabernet Sauvignon's parents had been two obscure grapes, then we would never have discovered them, and we would then never have launched onto our quest. I mean, then we started looking for parents. We called it prospecting for parents. If we hadn't serendipitously discovered it, it never would have occurred to us that classic wine grapes have identifiable parents. I had always assumed that 
the origins were just lost in antiquity. Some of them were wild vines. It never really occurred to me that they had parents. But, I mean, in retrospect, of course, it makes perfect sense. So what we started doing then, then we started deliberately looking for parents. But, geez, there's thousands and thousands of wine grapes, and we, there was no way we could look at the universe. We had to... We had to identify just a small world for us to look in. So we started thinking about how to narrow this down. So we thought, oh, and we did some reading. John and I both did, did some reading. and We kind of knew we were going to focus on France because much more, at that time, much more was known about French varieties, their history. It was much better documented. The collections existed, that they were better curated collections. What kind of collections are those? Well, this is a, the, the main one is a living collection. Almost every country has one now, a European country. But these are living libraries because you cannot preserve grape varieties as seeds because grapes don't come true from seed because the pollen may have come from somewhere else. And as we've since learned, it often does. So the only way to preserve the identity of, say, Cabernet Sauvignon, is to take a cutting from a Cabernet Sauvignon vine, plant it in a vineyard where you're going to protect it from all the onslaughts that nature and humans can bring to it. And you're going to have to keep it alive for indefinitely, because that's the only way you can preserve the identity of Cabernet Sauvignon. So right around 1900 in France, this is the time when phylloxera was tearing through France. You know, it had come into France in the late 1800s, piggybacking on American vines that were brought in as botanical curiosities. And they didn't realize at the time that there was an American insect living on the roots that uh, had never seen European wine grapes before. They didn't know how to coexist. And so this insect became a lethal pest Rather than just a minor irritant, as it is on American grapes, it became a lethal pest on uh, European wine grapes, started spreading fast through the vineyards of France, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Italy, and so on, moving eastward, killing vineyards. And probably half the vineyards in Europe were destroyed by phylloxera. And as this was starting, there were some really far-sighted people in Montpellier, at the institute there where they study grapevines, and they realized that vineyards were being lost and that their heritage was being lost and that they better preserve these. They better get them to someplace safe as quickly as they could. And so they started, over a period of years, they started getting cuttings from vineyards. They started prospecting just to find all the unique varieties that France had to preserve them in a living library. And they did it down on some very sandy soil on the shores of the Mediterranean. And this collection still exists, although unfortunately it's going to have to be moved because it's on land that's privately owned and it no longer suits the purposes of the company that owns the land. So they're going to have to relocate the entire collection. But anyway, but it's, it's going to be done in an orderly fashion. So anyway, so this collection was established near Montpellier. It's on sandy soil where phylloxera cannot grow. It just doesn't like sand at all. And so because that collection was established, 
in the early 1900s, there are many, many grape vines, grape varieties that no longer exist in cultivation in France because their vineyards were destroyed, but they exist as entities because they were preserved. And that then has become such a resource, just an, an amazing resource, not just for the work that we've done, but for many, many, many other researchers all over the world. So what we did was we tried to narrow it down. So where are we going to focus our work? We can't study every wine grape in the world. Let's focus. So we decided for various reasons to focus on northeastern France. It has a long history, fairly well documented. So I approached uh, Jean-Michel Boursicot, who is a, an ampelographer, a grape expert, a researcher, a professor at ENSA, which is the, the university in Montpellier where they study grapes. And he's kind of the intellectual overseer of that collection. So I told Jean-Michel that I really wanted to discuss this, this project with him. And so we met at a, a Greek restaurant in the 5th in Paris, and I brought a big book with all the French wine grapes, and we sat down and started trying to hammer it out. And John Bowers and I had already come up with a list of what we thought were prospects and talked to Jean-Michel some more. So we, we ended up identifying 300 French wine grapes that we thought had connections to northeastern France, either historically or by appearance. This looks like Chardonnay, so maybe it's related. Or somebody had speculated that historically it had once been there. And so, you know, all these different connections. So northeastern France, is that pre-World War II border or post? No, we were mostly, mostly focusing on Burgundy and Champagne, you know, but in a broad way. Also, so the eastern Loire, because... The varieties that we historically these regions hadn't weren't well defined, and the varieties and pollen and things moved around a lot. So, the bottom line is we identified 300 grapes associated with northeastern France and decided we will analyze those. And John developed a computer program that would help us analyze the data because we couldn't look through all the possible combinations with all the markers. And that was probably a big step. Like it wasn't just him at his house looking at these markers. Now it was a computer program. Right, because it was just too much for one head to, uh, just too many possible combinations. Because for every, let's, for every three varieties, A, B, and C, we would look at 25 DNA markers just to start. And we would say, A, it could be in C, B, your parents. B, could A and C be your parents? C, could A and B be your parents? So for every three, there were three possibilities. And for every, if you get to four, there's six possibilities, and it just goes on and on. And that's for every marker, so it's just, it's just too much. It has to be a computer. So we did that with 300 markers. What fell out of it was we found the parents for 26 varieties, including Syrah, Chardonnay, and a whole bunch of others. And that for, seems like a lot. It, it was. We knew we'd find some. We really didn't know what to expect. But 26, we were pretty pleased. But the, the really awesome thing was that 16 of those 26 had the same two parents. And that's what, that's just what blew us away. And those parents were Pinot Noir and Gouet Blanc. And they, they were the parents of 16 of these varieties. And back in the Middle Ages, you know, Pinot Noir was the dominant grape grown on all the slopes. 
on land owned by the church, the Catholic Church and the nobility, the Dukes of Burgundy. But what the hell is Gouet Blanc? Nobody had heard of Gouet Blanc. I'd never heard of Gouet Blanc. You know, most people had never heard of Gouet Blanc. Turns out it was a grape that was grown on the flatland in northeastern France, and it was the favorite grape of the serfs. So all these fancy Pinot Noir vineyards, they were all farmed during the day by the serfs who'd go back to their villages on the flatland. What would they drink? They'd drink the wine they made from Gouet Blanc that they grew all over the place. And the Dukes of Burgundy thought that that was just a really ordinary variety. It was too productive. They tried to ban it three times, but it never worked because the serfs were going to grow what they wanted to grow. So it turns out that there was a lot of Gouet Blanc growing in northeastern France and a lot of Pinot Noir. So that meant there was a lot of pollen flowing around because the, through the air. And grapes are not insect-pollinated. They're wind-pollinated. So whenever you have two varieties growing in close proximity, there's going to be some pollen going between them. And so sometimes it was pollen from the Gouet landing on a Pinot vine. Sometimes it was vice versa, pollen from a Pinot. So what happens is if a pollen grain, say from Gouet Blanc, lands on a flower of Pinot Noir, then that means that a grape berry will develop, and that grape berry might have up to four seeds. One of those seeds is going to come from that pollen grain. Any other seeds are going to come from some other pollen grain from somewhere else. So, so what that means, and this is kind of a, a difficult concept for a lot of people, so one of those seeds then, that berry would have been eaten by a bird, and then that seed would have been pooped out in a vineyard where maybe there was an empty spot, and it would have come up as a volunteer grapevine. And the grower would have said, okay, I need a vine there anyway, and it wasn't uncommon to have mixtures in vineyards. And the important thing is that it was one vine. So among these 16 varieties that were the offspring of these same two parents, Pinot Noir and Gouet Blanc, let's just take Chardonnay as an example. So Chardonnay would have been one seedling that came from one seed in a berry that was eaten by a bird, and that seed came from one pollen grain. So every Chardonnay vine in the whole world came from that one original vine that came from one seed. So it, it's not Every time a pollen grain from Gouet Blanc lands on Pinot Noir, you're going to get Chardonnay. No, you're going to get something different every single time. And it's just like with people. So you have the same two parents, mother and father. And if they have six kids, that's six independent conceptions, six independent individuals. So that's how it is with grapes. Every time you get a pollen grain landing on a flower, that's going to be a different individual. So we discovered then the parents of Chardonnay, and it turns out those same two parents are also the parents of Melon, of Aligote, of Auxerrois, of Damaron, Romorantin, Sassi, uh, Gamay Noir. It, it just goes on and on. So, And those are just the ones that exist in the Montpellier collection that we were able to get samples of that made it into our 300 variety initial cut. So who knows how many others have just been lost now. So that was kind of, that was our prospecting for parents era. But then we kind of moved on from there. You must have got some acclaim from that. I mean, that, that must have been a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. And in fact, the 
Well, the Cabernet Sauvignon discovery, which was our first discovery, that was a big deal because nobody had ever thought that important wine grapes might be the offspring of other important wine grapes, or, or, or even that they had parents, identifiable parents. That, that was kind of a big deal. That all these flavor profiles could be related in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there's something heritage. to that. Yeah, there's something to that. But then the, the whole Chardonnay, Pinot, Gouet, Malone, all that, we got a paper in the journal Science for that, which was a uh, big deal. That right? was a big deal for me. It was a big deal. I mean, science and nature are like the big ones. They are, right? yeah. And so, uh, my husband's terribly proud of me for that. He just he tells everybody. He he tells everybody that. And I get I get embarrassed sometimes, but but that's the kind of thing that might cross over to mainstream media too, right? Well, it did. Yeah, we got we got a lot of coverage and and science promoted it. I mean, they they sent out a press release. It was embargoed. That's how big science stories all of the, the science press gets it ahead of time, but it's embargoed until a certain day. So I I was doing all kinds of interviews. It it was it was pretty exciting. It was really pretty exciting to do. Anyway, so so that that was really a thrill. I mean, it was it was a thrill. But then we moved on from there and and by this time John Bowers had long since he'd finished his PhD and he he'd moved on. He's at the University of Georgia now where he still is working on completely different plants. He doesn't work on grapes at all. I got interested in uh trying to find the home of Zinfandel. And how did that happen? Well, Zinfandel, you know, is a major grape in California, but the name is not known anywhere else, Zinfandel. And, and so the story had kind of developed that maybe Zinfandel was California's own grape. Like a mission or something like that. Yeah, well, mission, we, we, we kind of knew that mission wasn't California's own grape because we knew that the missionaries had brought the mission grape. So we knew that probably came from Europe. But Zinfandel... We didn't know. Oh, like it might be wild to the region. It, it might be native to the, yeah, it right. might be a native California grape, like, you know, like Conquer like is Conquer. or something like yeah. that, or, or Muscadine. But anybody who knows anything about grapes and looks at, at Zinfandel would know it's a European grape. Oh, is that true? It's, yeah, it's, just, you can tell the by signatures. looking at the leaves. But it's the leaves. You know, the, the leaves of grapes are very, very distinctive. That's why grape identification before DNA was always done by leaf. Because it's much more distinctive and identifiable than the fruit is. So not only did it look like a European wine grape, it looked like a Central European wine grape because it has fairly large leaves and that kind of Northern European grapes have smaller smaller leaves like Pinot and Riesling and the much smaller leaves. And Gouet was an Eastern European thing, right? Gouet was Eastern European. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, Gouet turns out came from uh, Central Europe. We're not too sure where. Uh, it, it's still known today in German speaking, in, in Austria anyway, it's known as Hoynischweiss. So, and some people think it came from Croatia, but it, we really don't know. We really don't know. And some people speculate that it might have been brought to France by Emperor Probus, who liked the Gauls, but that, that's speculation. But it's fun to speculate, you know. I so, mean, I can only imagine. Like, it's like you're weaving new myths, in a way. Yeah, why not? Like, yeah. when you do all this heritage stuff. Yeah. Like, it must lead you to all kinds of new thoughts. Like, exactly. oh, well, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, maybe. You know? why, yeah, why not? And until somebody proves you wrong, then, you know. And in fact, people used to speculate about where a lot of varieties came from until we... Until you told them they were all well, wrong we the in tools, science. You know? yeah, I, think, <laughs> yeah. I think I've pissed off some wine writers who, you know, because I, I ruined their stories. But you know, no more know. Shiraz from Persia kind yeah, of thing. Oh, that that's been yeah, that's been a big one. That's been a big one. Or Chardonnay from Lebanon, or 
Cabernet from Albania and all those things. But the Syrah one, that's that's been a big one. So got interested in, in where did Zinfandel come from? We know it came from Europe. In the 70s, people noticed Primitivo in Italy, and some people at Davis went to Italy and tasted it and said, hey, it tastes like Zin. They brought some Primitivo plants back, said, wow, it looks like Zin. And this was before DNA analysis, but some more rudimentary analysis said, you know, this, I think this is Zin. When our DNA tools came along, we analyzed Primitivo. Yeah, guess what? They're the same variety, just two names for the same variety. But the Italians said, but it's not Italian. We know it, we know it didn't get here till probably the late 1700s, so we know it's not Italian. All you have to do is look at a map and look at the boot of Italy, which is where Primitivo was grown in Apulia, and that little Adriatic Sea. That's just a little thing. You know, ferries go back and forth. It's not very wide. And on the other side is the Dalmatian coast of Croatia. Obvious place to look, obvious place to look. And the main wine grape grown there is Plavac Mali. And Mike Gurgic, who owns Gurgic Hills Winery in California and Vinja Gurgic in Croatia, he is Croatian. He had long thought that Plavac Mali from his homeland tasted so much like Zinfandel in his new land that they were probably the same. But we had already tried that one because we had Plavitz Mali growing in our collection at Davis. We knew they weren't the same, but we did know that they were relatives because remember, we know how to recognize relatives. So we knew that they were close relatives and that one was probably the parent of the other. Either Zin's the parent of Plavitz Mali or vice versa. So we knew then that Croatia, the Dalmatian coast of Croatia, that that's gotta be where we should look I didn't know anybody there. Mike Gurgic knew a lot of people there and wanted to help me, but he didn't know the right people there, so it was kind of frustrating. But serendipity plays a big role in science. And so here I am. It's December of 1997. And for a few months, I had been trying to figure out how am I going to get to Croatia because I think I need to go there because we'd looked at every Croatian grape we had in the university collection. I didn't have anybody else to talk to about trying to get some more. So I need contacts. I get an email in December of 1997 from a guy named Ivan Pejic. And his email said, Dear Dr. Meredith, this is, this is how he talks. Dear Dr. Meredith, my name Ivan Pejic. I am Professor Plant Genetics, University Zagreb. We are studying our autochthonous Croatian grapes and we want to identify all of our genetic resources and preserve them. And we think your DNA methods could be helpful to us. Would you help us? And I said, hell yes, you know. I said, well, yes, I can help you. I'm looking for Zinfandel. And I think it's there. Will you help me? He says, well, I've never heard of Zinfandel, but sure. So it was a perfect, just a perfect fit. They wanted to study all their Croatian grapes, and among those I suspected was Zinfandel. We just have to find it. I've got the tools. They got the grapes. We've got a connection. Just perfect, you know, just perfect. So then we started planning to work together, and we planned that the next May I would go. I would go to Croatia. So in May, I flew into Zagreb, and I stayed at the Zagreb Sheraton, 
And Yvonne and I had agreed to meet in the lobby of the Zagreb Sheraton. And there's all this explaining how to recognize me, you know. I've, I've got a beard. I've got short gray hair, blah, blah, blah. So I, I've I, never I, noticed your beard, Carol. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yes, yes. It, I, shaved, I shaved very closely this morning. So I go into the lobby, and I'm looking for Yvonne, and I see this very serious guy sitting on a couch, and he's looking at me, and I can see, you know, short gray hair. It's got to be her. So it's like, Yvonne, Carol, yes. So good. Okay, shake hands. Still a little stiff, you know. So we go out to the car. And he's got, I don't know what it was, a Yugo or something, you know, some, some little rickety Eastern European car. Because now this is 1998, May 1998. Croatia had not been independent for very long. It had been part of Yugoslavia. They had uh, had a big civil war. The individual republics broken away. But still, very much a post-communist feel about the whole place, especially the cars. Like you could have been in a John le Carre novel for yeah, a moment Oh, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is cold and gray, you know? So we go out to the street, and we get into Yvonne's little Yugo or whatever it is. We get in the car, and he pops a cassette in. It's the Allman Brothers. Oh, we're friends. We're friends. So, I mean, that... Oh, just talk about melting the ice. You know, music, universal, universal language, right? So, yeah, so we became friends, and we are still good friends. He is just a fine, fine person. And I very soon met his colleague, Eddie Malatich, also at uh, the University of Zagreb, and those are, those are my two Croatian collaborators. Is he more of a Doobie Brothers guy? You know, I don't know. I don't know, because... Yvonne is, is more uh, of a soulmate to me. Got it. Uh, Eddie's been a little stiffer, and I haven't spent nearly as much time talking to Eddie as I have to Yvonne. Even uh, and I are more on the same wavelength about a lot of things. And Eddie's quite a bit younger, and maybe that's part of it. And, and Eddie's trained as a viticulturist, whereas Yvonne is trained as a geneticist. So scientifically, we're more on the same wavelength, too. That other guy might be a Guns N' Roses guy is what you're trying to say. He might be. I don't know. You know, I'm trying to remember because I, th I think we must have talked music at, at some point. I mean, Guns N' Roses is good for plant people, right? You know, I don't know. I've never been a big Axl Rose fan myself. I, I could never. Just I, going off the name. Though. Yeah, I, I, could, I understand. I, I get it. I get it. It just wasn't that funny is what you're trying to tell me. Well, That's, nice. <laughs> That's it, nice. I got it. I got it. But, you know, I, I just couldn't find a connection there. No. So anyway, so we started a program of searching through Croatian grapes. And the first trip, I took samples back with me. But then from then on, after that, Yvonne and Eddie would go out into vineyards themselves. And what they would do is they would talk to, they would talk to old guys. Because we knew that Zinfandel couldn't be a mainstream grape in Croatia or else we'd already know it, you know, it, it would be obvious. And besides their project, their project was focused on finding all the weird stuff that they maybe didn't even know existed because for them it was their patrimony that was before well, the communist yes, era. And, and they knew that it was in jeopardy, not from phylloxera this time, but from a global economy. And that was the risk. That was the risk that here they've got a depressed agricultural economy. They've lost a lot of people to wars, to industrialization, to people leaving the land, and the few people that are on the land can't make a living because who wants to buy Croatian, Croatian wine because you can't pronounce the names? And so you've got them being tempted 
by this global economy that's based on Merlot and Chardonnay, you know? And that was what's tempting them. Let's rip out these grapes that nobody can pronounce and plant Merlot and Chardonnay. And this is what Yvonne and Eddie recognized was the big danger. And that's why they had to preserve their viticultural heritage before it was gone. So that's what that was their side of it. Because that's so, happened twice in this story with Montpellier and these guys. It's yeah, almost well, like you took over the role of the monks, like keeping the literature alive during yeah, the Middle Ages. You know what I mean? Like this yeah, has happened yeah. twice where the plant people went out and saved the plants, yes, right? Right. that's right. And it's happened in other countries too. It's happened in, in every grape growing, every old world grape growing country has now got a collection. Uh, France was probably the first to do it, but and Croatia may be the most recent. But in between, there's a whole lot because- the heritage is just huge, you know. It's just it's just huge, and it's so easily lost, especially since you can't store grape varieties as seeds. You have to make a concerted effort, and it's expensive to preserve these things. So Yvonne and Eddie started going to vineyards and taking samples and sending these samples back to me by FedEx at Davis, and they would send me an email to tell me it was coming, and every every little package would have like 10 or 12 new varieties that they had found. And so the stuff we collected on my first trip was not Zinfandel, okay, but it was useful to them because it was something new. And then they would send me more and they would say, you know, Carol, I, I, think, I think sample six, we think this looks a lot like Zinfandel. This might be it. We'd analyze it. No, sorry. Next batch, well, we think, we think maybe sample, sample 15. This, this, really, this really looks like Zin. Uh, this is it this time, Carol. Well, sorry. Well, about the third try, Yvonne says, you know, and he was naming, these were all named IP6, IP17, standing for Yvonne Page. So he says, you know, Carol, IP29, I think this this has got to be it. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the boy, you know, the boy who cried wolf. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've heard this story before. Yeah. yeah. So we analyzed it. It was, it was Infidel. It was Infidel, you know. And this was three, after three years of doing this. So now we're talking 2001. And it was in December. So it was four years almost to the day from when Yvonne first sent me his email. Three years of searching. We found it. And it was in one vineyard on the coast in the town of Castella. And there it was in a vineyard that was mostly Plavitz Molly. Just a few of these vines. I think there were nine vines out of thousands in this vineyard that happened to be Zinfandel because that vineyard had been propagated by cuttings from a neighboring vineyard that maybe, you know, just kind of just by accident had carried over the heritage of preceding vineyards. And Zinfandel happened to have made it through that process without anybody really realizing that this wasn't the same as, as the others. So we found Zinfandel. Yvonne and Eddie found it in one more place where it was growing on, on a lady's porch. And there, so it, in Castella, it was going by the name Cyrilianic Castellansky, which simply means the red from Castella. On the old lady's porch, it was called Pribidrag. And then Yvonne and Eddie went to the Natural History Museum in Split, where there's a collection of dried grapevine samples, the leaves, of everything that had been grown in Croatia around 1900. And in there was a sample called Tribidrag, and it looked like Zin. And here they'd found on this old lady's porch, Pribidrag, Pribidrag, Tribidrag, and it looks like it. So that's probably Zin. But it's, it's a dead 
herbarium specimen. It's just a dead leaf. And the markers don't carry through like you can't. Well, it's dead. You yeah. Know, it, it, yeah. DNA, you have to get DNA from out a of live living thing. things. Yeah. Because DNA just decomposes, it deteriorates. So they tried to get DNA that at the time people were starting to be able to get DNA out of some old stuff, but not very well. And Yvonne and Eddie tried, weren't successful. And so there it stood that. This turbidrag is probably Zinfandel, but we can't prove it. Ten years later now, so this is 2001, ten years later, another Croatian research group publishes something about getting DNA out of archaeological samples. So Yvonne and Eddie go to those guys and say, hey, we got this old leaf. Could you give it a try? They gave it a try. They were able to get DNA out of this old leaf in the museum, and it matched and so that confirmed that Tripodrag was Zinfandel. And that's what you call your bottling of Zinfandel yes. today. Yes. And so a historian got involved after that, and he determined that, that Tripodrag was a name that was well-known in the 1300s, that it was one of the major wine grapes in the Adriatic wine trade. He found all kinds of documentation. So it's an ancient grape, much, much older than Cabernet Sauvignon. So I think we do have to call it noble. And so in my own vineyard... Did in, you ask Anne? Uh, no, good point. Good point, yes. Uh, she, she really should have the last say over all the noble grapes, I think. So Anne Noble Rot, too. So when we planted Zinfandel in our own vineyard in Napa, I decided, you know, I got to call this Tribodrag because for me, it pulls my whole life together because I've had this schizophrenic existence as a a grape researcher, but also as a grape grower and wine producer. And they're kind of separate worlds, but yet the Tribodrag brings it together. The mondus that we make also brings it together because I did research on that. But the Tribodrag in a in a very a very deep way for me, because this was the last thing I, I retired from the university in 2003. I'm still connected, but I don't do a lot of active stuff anymore. You wanted but, to dedicate more time to the winery. Yeah, I couldn't do both. You know, I just couldn't do both. They were both totally consuming. Running our vineyard and winery is a 60-hour-a-week job. Being a professor at the University of California, 60-hour-a-week job. And there was no way I could do both of those jobs well. And after 23 years at the university, dealing with a big bureaucracy, I was ready to, to give that up. And you'd, uh, you'd already purchased some land on the top of Mount Veter. Well, yes, we we and we'd actually been living in Napa for most of my for most of my UC Davis career. I lived on a mountain in Napa, Mount Veter, and I commuted to Davis. My husband Steve was working at Robert Mondavi Winery. I was commuting to Davis. We planted our vines starting in '94. Started producing wine commercially uh, with a '98 vintage. That was starting to take more and more of our time. My husband, Steve Legere, left his job at Mondavi in 99 to devote more time to getting our vineyard going. I was trying to do the wine business and Davis. That was pretty stressful. So in 2003, I took early retirement from the university. And now I'm still affiliated as Professor Emerita. And as I like to say, I have all the privileges and none of the responsibilities. You, know, you can I, still use the library and stuff. I, I have library privileges, electronic access to that whole library from my living room you know, in Napa, which is fantastic. Uh, email address, business card, parking permit. So, you know, that's such a deal. So... 
Anyway, this Infidel thing was the last thing that I did active research on. It was really satisfying because not only did it answer a genetics question, we connected Zinfandel to its European roots. That was a, you know, that was a connection that really was, it needed to be made. So we connected that. But then also, I made some really good friends in Yvonne and Eddie, and they're, they're going to be lifelong friends. But you found out Zinfandel was like really old. Found out it was really old. But also here, Croatia has been having a hard time, as have all the former communist countries and the former Yugoslav republics, having a hard time, especially in the world of wine, trying to make it, you know, trying to fit in with Western Europe and the global wine economy. And our identifying Croatia as the home of Zinfandel which is a globally known variety. It's got a market in Europe, especially Northern Europe. There's a market for Zinfandel there. Croatia is the home of Zinfandel. There are now wine tours that go to, that go to Croatia. They go to the town of Castella. They go to the original vineyard. It's put them on the map, you know, it's put them on the map. And there are now Croatian producers who are planting Zinfandel, there, there was hardly any there, but you better believe they're multiplying it. They even sent some to Davis to get the virus diseases removed and then sent it back to Croatia. With a big help, I might add a big help from Ridge Vineyards. Ridge Vineyards in California has been financially supportive of all this work. So, I mean, they, and not out of any big economic interest, but out of Paul Draper's intellectual interest in the project. So it, it helped to put to put Croatia on the wine map. And for me, that was just really a satisfying thing to kind of to kind of leave on, a really satisfying note. But also it kind of solidified something about America because people think of Zinfandel as a very American grape at the time when September 11th had happened just previously. Yes. And it was kind of this flux time for what's America. Exactly, right. And, and it, you know, it solidified our connection to Europe. Uh, we are all Zinfandel. Oh, I, mu I must say, there's actually going to be, in 2016, there's going to be a conference in Croatia on Tribadrag. And one of the slogans that's being tossed around is, I am Tribadrag. And it's going to tie together all the different countries that produce wine under different names, you know, which would include Italy, the United States, Albania, where they call it Crotosia, and a few other countries, and countries that are important for uh, important markets for the grape as well. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And it's really pretty cool that you did that with you know basically two other people. Yeah, well, we all had people, we all had people working with us in our research groups. You know, in fact, when I when I give a PowerPoint on this, I have a big long. We are Tribadrag. Yeah, it's got each I, I got a big long list <laughs> because they're actually some of the people in France helped because we actually found a missing Croatian link in the French National Collection. It was a grape that doesn't exist in Croatia anymore. Oh. But in the 1950s, it had been put into the French collection. And it turns out that Plavitz Mali, we knew that it was a, a relative of Zinfandel, either parent or progeny. Turns out Plavitz Mali is the progeny of Zinfandel, and the other parent is Dobricic, which is an old Croatian grape that no longer exists there and existed in the French collection. Actually, it does still exist in Croatia, but it wasn't known to exist at, at the time. So anyway, so so now my, my life, I don't do any of the genetics anymore. I still talk about it a little bit. 
Now, we just produced wine up on Mount Veeder. Um, and you made grow- some interesting grape choices, really. Yeah, I mean, Malbec, I think so. Mondeuse. Zinfandel that we call Tribadrag, and, and Syrah. Syrah is what we started with. When we first started, we had no plans to make wine commercially. We bought the land as a beautiful place to live. We planted some grapes because we wanted to make some wine for ourselves. We chose Syrah because we love it, and we thought we had the perfect site for it. It's a cool site where uh, Mount Veeder is is the southernmost mountain location in Napa. Uh, we're at the southern end of that Appalachian. We can see the bay from our place. So the San Pablo Bay. Yeah, San Pablo Bay, which is the northern part of the San Francisco Bay. So we get a cool sea breeze every summer afternoon. Our site's quite cool, and we thought it was a great site for Syrah because Syrah, you know, Syrah grows in so many places. It, it makes a decent wine just about anywhere, but it makes a great wine in only places that have some coolness because that brings out the complexity. You can get nice ripe Syrah grapes in lots of places, and you'll get a nice fruity wine with some alcohol. But in a cool place, in addition to fruit, you get flowers and spice and pepper and lots of nice things. And that, that's what we get in ours. And you have to have... What about reduction? Is it ever reductive? You know, Steve likes to say Syrah walks the reductive edge. So it, it's always a possibility with Syrah. But, you know, you, you give it a little air, you watch it during winemaking, and, and you can avoid having an overly reduced Syrah. Now, Mondeuse we planted because in the course of my research, we discovered that it's a close relative of Syrah. It turns out that uh, Syrah's parents are Dereza from the west side of the Rhone and Mondeuse Blanche from the east side of the Rhone. A white version of Mondeuse. A white, yeah, it's, it's a, a white grape, and that's Syrah's mother. And it turns out that, that historically, those two grapes uh, occupied the same geographic area a long time ago, and it's pretty much where Crow's Hermitage is now. And so that means that that's where that seed that was, you know, a pollen grain of Dereza landed on a flower of Mondeuse Blanche. A berry got eaten by a bird, a seed got pooped out, and that turned out to be the one single first vine of Syrah. So that's the birthplace of Syrah. We'll Crow's be, Hermitage. Yeah, around Crow's Hermitage. And I, I was once at a, a Syrah symposium in Italy. And Michel Chaputier was at the same symposium. It was all about Syrah. And he was just thrilled to learn that the origin of Syrah was much closer to Hermitage than it is to Cote Roti. He just, that made his day, made his day. So Mondus Noir is not just the black form of Mondus Blanchet, but it's a, a very closely related variety. So that means that Mondus Noir is a close relative of Syrah. But yet it makes quite a different wine in France because it's grown in a cool place. It makes a light-bodied wine. It's in the Savoie is where it's grown. So we thought, let's plant Mondeuse Noir and eliminate all those, all those other differences. We'll grow this grape on the same side as Syrah. So we've got the same soil. We've got the same weather. We've got the same rootstock. We've got the same farming methods, pruning. Uh, we've got the same winemaking. We've got the same barrels. We've got the same aging. So everything's the same except the grape variety. So now let's compare them. And what we get what we get is still it's a it, it's a distinctly different wine than Syrah, but so much closer. So much closer. It's got a lot more in the nose. It's got some pepper and flowers like we see in our Syrah. It tends to be a little more 
robust wine than our Syrah most years, which totally shocked us. The first year we made our Syrah, which was 2009, we were shocked that we had something, we were expecting something lighter bodied, lighter colored than our Syrah. We got something darker colored, richer, spicier than our Syrah. It, it totally shocked us. What about the tannins? In most years, it's even slightly more tannic than our Syrah. So unexpected, you know. So it has high acid and high tannin. Yeah, yeah. Which is unusual for a French grape variety, right? Yeah. Well, we have a fairly high acid site. I mean, we, we always have good acid. It's probably because it's a relatively cool site. And we planted the Zinfandel mostly because I felt such a strong connection to it that I had to have some. I just had to have some Zin, so we planted a little bit of Zin. We have a small vineyard. We, we have less than five acres of vines. And that's because Steve and I do all the work, and we can't. We just can't get any bigger and still do it all ourselves. It's probably hard to get help up there too, right? You know, it's actually not hard to get help up there, but we don't want help because that changes everything. It just changes everything, and we like to do it all because that way we get we we touch every vine several times every every year, you know, and that that gives us a lot more knowledge about what goes into our wine. The last grape that we planted was Malbec, and that's the only one that doesn't have a connection to my research. We planted that because a neighbor of ours makes some Malbec, and that's Cuvesson. They they own a vineyard uh, called the Brandlin Vineyard that used to be owned by the Brandlin family, and they make a Malbec from that, and we thought it was so good, and they're very close to us physically. So we got budwood from that vineyard and planted it in our place, and we're really pleased with our Malbec. And there's several other producers on Mount Vitor also making Malbec now, and they're all really good. And so I So how I do you handle that? Like, do you punch Malbec down? or We make all our wines the same way. Yeah, how's that? All of our wines, we ferment in tea bins. So they're fairly small lots. They take they hold about a half a half a ton of fruit. So a tea bin is like a neutral bin made of like polyurethane. It's made it's made of food grade plastic. It's double walled, so it has some insulating properties, which is good. So it means the fermentation can heat up, uh, and it'll stay at a nice temperature. It won't get too hot, but because it's not, it, it, there are things these things called fish bins that some people ferment in that are so heavily insulated that the sometimes the fermentations get too hot and the yeast stops. You know, it just freezes. It just it just sticks. But these tea bins are perfect. It, most of our fermentations run in the low 80s Fahrenheit, and that's just perfect. We ferment in those. We punch down by hand two or three times a day. Uh, we press when dry. We don't we don't do any cold soak beforehand. We don't do any extended maceration. Our, our winemaking is very simple. You know, it's these are they're vineyard wines. I know it's it's a kind of a cliche, but, but it they makes really sense are. that you would make that. They right? really are, given your history. Yeah, well, you know, we're out in the vineyard. We just make every decision in the vineyard, and in the winery, we just don't want to mess around. We're happy with what we got. So no cold soak, no extended maceration. Uh, what we, about stems? You know. There are some stems, there always are some stems, but we, we never do whole clusters, but there always are some stems. That make we, it through the, the stemmer. They get through, yeah, they get through. So there's always some, but we've, we've never done whole cluster. We do sometimes, especially more recently, do whole berry, just because the destemmer, uh, what we used to use just completely mashed up the berries, but now we use a, a, a destemmer that leaves most of the berries whole. So, uh, You're getting a little more intercellular? Yeah, so we're not really sure. 
what this is doing for us because we've only done it in the last couple of vintages, so time will... Does that include 11 and 12 or just 12? No, that in probably just includes just 14 and 15. Okay. Yeah, All so right. it's very recent. So we really haven't seen that yet No, in you bottle. really haven't seen it, right. So we, we really haven't either, so we don't know. So we make all our wines that way. We press them as soon as, as they're dry, and then we get them into barrel as soon as we can. And then we barrel age them all for about 20 to 22 months, except for the Zinfandel that we usually bottle a little bit younger. So for the Zinfandel, it's usually more like 16 months, something like that. So going from the research side to the practical side, what have been the, some of the big takeaways for you? You know, there is almost nothing that I learned on the research side that I use on the practical side. And it's interesting, Steve has a somewhat technical background too. And he was a biochemistry major as an undergrad before he, he went to grad school and, and learned the winemaking side. And people always assume that because we both have scientific backgrounds that we must bring that to the vineyard and the winemaking, but we don't. Not at all. I mean, not at all. It's really been like two lives for you. Oh, absolutely. It's It's been, it's very much been two lives. And I won't say schizophrenic, but very, very different. And everything we do in our, in our vineyard and winery is all very traditional and sort of intuitive, you know, and we... I suppose, on the one hand, looking at a grapevine and knowing what I know about how they work inside, I think that's interesting. You know, for me, I kind of get a sense for what's ticking in there, and I kind of like that. I kind of like understanding, but I don't think it really influences our practices. But I just like understanding. I've always liked to understand things, and I, I like to understand that. And I think Steve likes to understand it too, but it doesn't change, it, it doesn't really alter what we do. So for me, it, it has been a, a big jump to go from my scientific life to my life on a mountaintop now. And, and for a long time, they really overlapped. I mean, for about 16 years, they overlapped where I was driving from my mountaintop in Napa to this big university on an interstate highway. And it was a it was hard sometimes to leave my mountaintop because it's beautiful and it's cool and it's just gorgeous. And I'd be going to Davis, which is in the Central Valley, and it's flat and it's hot in the summertime. And that was sometimes I I didn't have to ask Steve to push me into the car, but sometimes I almost felt like I needed him to help me because I wasn't going to go. I don't want to go. So one of the big changes for me has been to go from working in a big organization where I ran a research program and it was me. I was in charge and there was a lot of ego there. And that's that's fun. You know, it's it's fun to have people always kind of respecting your authority. To go now, I'm in this very small organization. It's just Steve and me. And we don't have any committees, and we don't have policies and procedures, we don't have team building sessions. Do you ever have to remind them who you are? Do you know who I am? You know, we, we joke about things like that all the time, all, all the time. Uh, our, our life is full of laughter, you know. I got to say, 
I was married to somebody else before. Steve and I have been together for over 30 years now. And I was married to somebody else before. And and it was a a very nice relationship, you know, a very decent person, a really good person. But over the years, I began to think, you know, I want my life to be more fun. I kind of grew up with silly men. My dad was silly. My Both my brothers are very silly. But my first husband was smart and good and committed to a lot of things, but not silly. And I just began, and he didn't like music. He didn't like music, except for the lyrics. You know, if the lyrics were meaningful, that was fine. But he, he didn't feel it. He just didn't feel it in his bones. So I decided to leave because even though it was secure, safe, nice, it wasn't fun. So I left. And that's probably one of the riskiest things I've ever done because I didn't know I wasn't leaving to go to somebody else. I was just leaving, hoping that maybe there might be something that was fun on the horizon. And little did I know that within three months, I'd be with Steve Legere. And he's just a hell of a lot of fun. He just makes me laugh every day. And, and for him, that's his mission in life, is to make me laugh every day. And he succeeds every day. And I could see it the first time he makes me laugh. As I'm laughing, I look at him, and he's just glowing. He's just, it makes him so happy to make me laugh. And he loves music. He just loves music. And 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 he loves it loud, and he feels it, you know? And, and so we share that. So it's just wonderful. We just have a, a wonderful life together. And then, and then we formed this business together, and that was never something that we envisioned at the outset. I mean, we were together and committed to spending our lives together, but we never dreamed we'd have a business together. And that can be, that can be really challenging for a couple to have a business together but I think we've succeeded because we respect each other's turf. He is the winemaker. I am, I am not the winemaker. He is the winemaker. I am in charge of everything that has to do with the business, you know. I deal with all the orders, the government compliance, which I find to be a total pain in the ass. But it has to be done, and I'm pretty tolerant. Having spent all this time in a bureaucracy at the university. Filling out the grant forms. Yeah, I, I can fill out forms with the best of them, and I'm, I'm pretty... You're like, no, I have not committed any crimes that I haven't been convicted for. Yeah, exactly. For. I can do it. I can do that. In the vineyard, we do clash occasionally in the vineyard because I know a lot about grapevines, and Steve knows a lot about grapevines, and so, eh. But uh, in the end... In the end, he probably makes most of the truly fateful decisions in the vineyard, but but he listens to me a lot in the vineyard because he knows that I understand a lot about grapevines, and so we have mutual respect for each other there. So I, I think, for the most part, we don't step on each other's toes in the business, and, and that works out very well. And every once in a while, he'll start to step on my toe, and usually it'll be about whether we're going to write something off on the taxes, and and I'll just turn to him, and he always he knows now what what my response is going to be when he suggests it. So now I don't even have to say it, and it's it's always, do you want to do the taxes? Carol Meredith likes to understand things, and she's found a business where she can laugh with a partner. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure, Levy. Carol Meredith of Lazier Meredith in Mount Vitor in Napa Valley. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton.
Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.